Well, good morning, church family. I'm Perry, and unlike Steve, I really love the fall. Not in a theological sense, but no, I love, I love sweatshirt weather, and especially football. My wife is on live stream somewhere laughing right now because she knows I'm not huge into sports, but football is pretty fun, right? So we are close to entering the holiday season. I believe there are now 92 days till Christmas. You're welcome, yes. I have a planner. It's a, a hard copy planner. I don't use, uh, you know, electronic stuff. I'm old school. But I have a planner. I keep track of my schedule. And in the front of my planner, it lists all of the holidays that it thinks I need to be aware of. Do you know how many holidays it lists? Seventy. That's like one every five days. Seventy. Here's here's a picture of it. Seventy man-made holidays, most of which were probably invented by Hallmark, right, to sell cards. As we read through the Old Testament law, we find God prescribed seven feasts, seven holidays that his people universally were to observe. In contrast, I think it's really kind of interesting that in the New Testament, we find a conspicuous absence of prescribed holidays. I mean, you know, not, not Pentecost, when the church was started, you know, or, or New Year's or Christmas or even Easter. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong for us to celebrate them. They're just not prescribed. We do have the Lord's Supper that we just celebrated or communion to remember Christ's sacrifice, but, but that's really the only parallel. The Hebrew word for the seven Jewish feasts is moedim. Moedim. It can be defined as appointed times. But it means a lot more than that. You see, it's not just a a festive time or a celebration. It's a time to reflect on all of the times when God revealed himself mightily and strong and, and loving and holy. The feasts commemorate important events in Israel's history so that God's people might remember and not forget his goodness and his faithfulness. And we read about them in Leviticus 23, they're, but they're, they're really interwoven throughout the whole Old Testament. There are four spring Moedim and three fall Moedim. And here's a list of their English names along with their Hebrew names. We've got in the spring, we've got the Passover or Pesach, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Hag Hamatzot, First Fruits, Yom Habikarim, and the Festival of Weeks, otherwise known as Pentecost or Shavuot. And then we have the Fall Moedim, the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Teruah, also known as Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and finally the Feast of Tabernacles, Tabernacles, Sukkot. So if we're no longer obligated to observe any of these Old Testament feasts, you know, like the rest of the Old Testament laws, we're not no longer under, what is the value of taking this morning to study them? Well, we know that Jesus not only observed 
the, the Old Testament law perfectly, with all the laws and commands, but he is the ultimate fulfillment of them as well. These holidays have been or will be fulfilled in the life of Jesus. The four spring feasts have already been fulfilled, while the three fall feasts are still in the future. The fall feasts will be fulfilled at the second coming of Christ. And the gap that we see there between the spring and the fall Moedim is a picture of the gap between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So even though we don't you know, religiously celebrate these feasts, they are still meaningful to us in ways that the Jews to whom they were given really can't even begin to appreciate or understand. So this morning we're going to look at the, some of the rich spiritual meaning behind each of these feasts, All right? How about we pray before we dive in? Father, there are just so many layers of meaning throughout your word. There, there's types and symbols and, and foreshadowing that you have given us to see how everything just ties together and how you're working everything toward a glorious end. And we pray that through these feasts, you would just help us to appreciate your sweeping plan of redemption and how Jesus is the super fulfillment of all of it. And we pray that as a result, we might long for your return all the more as we're going to get into this morning. We ask us in Jesus' name, amen. So the significance of these seven Jewish feasts is that they collectively tell a story. They tell a story. They depict the entire redemptive career of the Messiah. Here's the correlation between the seven feasts and the life of Jesus. And this is mind-boggling. If you've never been exposed to this, it's mind-boggling. God had his people celebrating these major events in the life of Christ thousands of years before Jesus was even born. So the feasts are prophetic, and they're a powerful witness to the identity of the one true Messiah. So let's begin and look at them. We're just going to take them in order this morning. First, we have the Feast of Passover. And I actually talked a lot about this in great detail on May 28th when we studied the Exodus. So if you didn't hear that message, you can go back and, and watch it online. Basically, Jesus Christ is the ultimate Passover lamb because when his sacrificial blood is applied to our lives, as you recall, the, the Israelites spread the, the, the lamb's blood over the lintel, over the doorposts. Like those Israelites, we are saved from God's judgment. Okay? So that's all I'm going to say about that. You can go back and watch that in more detail. The second one is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was observed the very next day after Passover. Again, as a reminder to the Israelites of their deliverance from Egypt and slavery there. When they fled... There was no time for their bread to rise. They left in the middle of the night. And so they left with all their bread dough, you know, uh, with just, just not, not able to rise. 
So the Lord said in Deuteronomy 16.3, you shall eat no unleavened bread with it, with, the, with this feast. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. So the Hebrew word for leaven or yeast is hametz, which literally means sour. Okay, Yeast causes things to sour or ferment, creating those tiny bubbles that make the bread rise. It's also a symbol of sin because just a little bit of yeast will quickly spread all the way through the dough, just like sin spreads through our lives and permeates our lives, just like that yeast. It's the first stage of decay, which only exists because of the curse of death that was decreed by God when Adam and Eve sinned, okay? When Jesus was buried, God did not allow his body to be cast on the garbage heap there outside Jerusalem. He was honored in his burial because he was a pure, sinless, without leaven, sacrifice. God honored him with a burial in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. I believe that God was making a statement there regarding the innocence of his son. But of even greater significance is the fact that Jesus' body never underwent decay. King David predicted this very thing when he spoke of the Messiah in Psalm 16.10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. Corruption is just another word for decay. So, Jesus fulfilled the feast of unleavened bread in that he was a pure, sinless sacrifice. And God validated this by burying him in a rich man's tomb, and his body was not permitted to undergo decay. Okay? And there's so much more you can study on these things. This is just very cursory, very basic. But uh, the, first, the third feast is the Feast of first fruits. This marked the beginning of the grain harvest there in Israel. It's usually barley. And it represented the whole harvest yet to come, kind of like a, a pledge or a guarantee. It occurred on the 16th day of Nisan, which was actually during the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it began a counting of seven Sabbaths that led up to the final spring feast, the Feast of Weeks. Now, there was an elaborate ceremony with about two-thirds of a bushel that was reaped, and the grain was threshed with rods. It was winnowed in the wind to remove all the chaff. It was parched over a flame. The barley was milled very fine. Finally, it was mixed with olive oil and frankincense, and the priests would wave it before the Lord, and they burned a small portion of it on the altar, and then they gave the rest of it to the Levitical priests. Now, Paul writes about how Jesus fulfilled this feast in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23, when he writes, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits." of those who have fallen asleep. It's just a reference of death. For as by a man came death, that would be Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So Jesus rose on the third day, right? 
literally the third day of the Passover season. Nisan 16, the very day of first fruits. First fruits. Now, Paul goes on to explain in verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So the resurrection of Jesus is really the beginning and the guarantee of the final harvest or resurrection. And Jesus gave us this ironclad guarantee when he promised his followers in John 14, 19, because I live, you shall live also. That's the promise. It's based on his first, as a forerunner, being the first to be resurrected. Okay, moving on to feast number four, the Feast of Weeks. This feast was exactly seven weeks and one day after first fruits. It was the day when the first wheat crop from summer was brought into the temple. Now, in the Greek language, Shavuot was known as Pentecost. It just it simply means 50th, okay? 50 days after first fruits. And in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus rose from the dead, you recall he appeared to his disciples speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And he told them to wait. Wait for the promised Holy Spirit who would empower them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And he was with them doing this for 40 days. And then he left. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's been there ever since. And the disciples did what Jesus told them to do. They waited. They waited exactly 10 days. Which brings us to Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So of these seven feasts, three of them were very solemn feasts, which meant that every Israelite male was obligated to present themselves at the Jewish temple during these these times. And this was one of those feasts. So there were Jews here from all over the Middle East, in Jerusalem and North Africa and Europe and Asia. And when Peter preached, 3,000 of them got saved. On that Shavuot morning, God initiated a new covenant with Israel, just as he foretold in Jeremiah 31.31 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then Joel 2.28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The Feast of Pentecost was made with Israel, but it depicts the birth of the church. Believing Jews and believing Gentiles becoming one in Christ. So, those are the first four feasts of the Lord. 
Each one commemorated a major event in the life of Christ. And each one was ultimately fulfilled by Christ. And each one was fulfilled on the exact day that it was prescribed. The prescribed feast. And that should give us hope and confidence that the three feasts yet to come will be fulfilled with the exact same precision. So let's look at the three spring feasts, or fall feasts, rather, yet to come. Number five, we get the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, which literally means the head of the year because it coincided with Israel's new year between mid-September and early October. Now, the Feast of Trumpets is on a day of darkness because it occurred during a new moon. The priests would blow ram's horns. They also had silver trumpets that they would blow in long and short blasts, and it commemorated the end of the agricultural and festival year. It also heralded a solemn time of preparation for the Day of Atonement. Now, this preparation time was called the Ten Days of Repentance, or the Days of Awe. And the trumpet sound was like this this national call to introspection and repentance. Very solemn. They believed that during this time, God decided whether a person would live or die in the coming year. This was kind of scary. (laughs) Ancient Jewish tradition held that the resurrection of the dead would occur on Rosh Hashanah. So that they would, they would often carve images of, of ram's horns on their gravestones in anticipation of that. The Apostle Paul made an explicit connection between this feast and the day of resurrection. A couple times in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17, he writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52, Paul writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now, Paul is talking about the rapture, or the resurrection of the church, that occurs at the last blast of a trumpet. But is he really referring to the feast of trumpets? You know, whenever Christians talk about the the timing of the rapture, you'll often hear them quote this verse. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. And they quote this to discourage date setting, okay, which has been rampant throughout church history, and and there's, there's good reason for that. But if you had been a Jew listening to Jesus when he said this, and you heard it, it would have triggered something in your mind. Very obviously, very quickly. 
You see, the Jews had various idioms or or figures of speech for all kinds of things. And the Feast of Trumpets had seven commonly known idioms associated with it. Here they are. It was also known as the opening of the books, the opening of the gates, the day of judgment, the hidden day, the coronation of the king, the wedding feast of the Messiah, and the feast of not knowing the day or the hour. Wow. Does that ring a bell? They called it this because it was the only feast that didn't have a fixed date. Why was that? That's because it was based on the first sighting of the crescent moon after the new moon. So if the sky was cloudy, they might have, they might have to wait another day or two to declare the feast. The point is, when Jesus, Jesus' hearers would have likely made this connection between this idiom and the timing of the second coming of the Son of Man and the resurrection and the final judgment. Do we know this for certain? No. But it makes a lot of sense that God would cause this major event to coincide with the next feast on the Jewish calendar. All right. Number six is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which actually begins tonight at sundown. Now, the word atonement is from the Hebrew word kippur, which literally means to cover, to cover. It was on this day that atonement or covering was made for the previous year's sins, and it consisted of a bloody sacrifice of an innocent animal. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Now, interestingly, this was kind of a surprise to me. The word atonement is never used in the entire New Testament. Hmm. Never used to describe what Jesus has done for us. And that's because under the new covenant, our sins are not just covered. We don't just have this covering. You know, it's like I saw a cartoon once where a person had this cardboard cutout of Jesus, okay? And he was crouching behind it, and God was looking at him and seeing Jesus instead of this sinful guy hiding behind this cardboard cutout of Jesus. And, and there's, there's truth in that. God does see Jesus instead of us, but it's way more than that. You see... Under the new covenant, our sins are not just covered. Our sins are completely done away with. As John the Baptist said in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't just cover it over, sweep it under the rug. The Day of Atonement was the most solemn day of the year for the people of Israel. And the only time that a fast was actually commanded rather than a feast. A bull and a goat were sacrificed as an offering of thanks while the high priest transferred the sins of the people to a scapegoat that was sent into the wilderness. Likewise, 
The Jewish leaders condemned Jesus, and he, burdened with all the sins of mankind, was led out of the city gate, out of the city to be crucified. So how is it that Jesus will fulfill this in the future as well? Well, here's one possible explanation. Because the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah, the Romans came in in 70 AD and destroyed their temple, and they could no longer observe this important day. So they changed it based on the words of one single rabbi. Jewish history records that during the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, as Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakei was coming forth from Jerusalem, Rabbi Joshua followed after him and beheld the temple in ruins. Woe to us, Rabbi Joshua cried, that this, the place where the iniquities of Israel were atoned for, is laid waste. My son, Rabbi Yohanan said to him, be not grieved. We have another atonement as effective as this. And what is it? It is acts of loving kindness, as it is said, for I desire mercy and not a sacrifice. In other words, not only did Israel reject the Messiah when, they came, when he came, but they abandoned atonement through the blood of a sacrifice and sought it instead through good works to this very day. It's their, it was their only option in their mind and understanding. But because the Jews rejected Jesus and failed to repent, his atonement was not applied to them. But when he returns, ethnic Jews will finally understand who he is and what he's done. Some people believe that Zechariah 12.10 is a description of that future event. It says, I will pour out on the house of David. Oops, let me go here. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Okay? But whether or not this verse is describing Christ's return, Yom Kippur points to a great multitude of people, Jews and Gentiles, who will be saved at the, when Jesus returns to the earth. All right. Finally, seventh is the Feast of Tabernacles. This was the most joyful and festive of all Israel's feasts, which came after all the crops have been harvested. It's mentioned in Scripture more than any other feast. God required all Israelites to dwell in these temporary booths or huts for seven days as an annual reminder of his provision when their ancestors wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and God's provision there. Now, now Jewish pilgrims would flock to Jerusalem and build thousands upon thousands of these leafy huts and they lined the streets, they filled the hillsides with thousands of campfires. This is also a picture of the only housing that first-time homebuyers can afford in Fort Collins. <laughs> this feast had two parts. It had the temple lighting ceremony and the water libation ceremony. And the temple lighting consisted of four towering lamps that were lit in the temple courts. Here's two of them. 
They flooded the temple and the streets of Jerusalem with, with bright light every night. And the Gospel of John records that it was on the day after the Feast of Tabernacles when Jesus returned from the Mount of Olives to teach in the temple. And when the Pharisees showed up to try to trap him, Jesus proclaimed in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This was right after the temple lighting ceremony. Because of the many Old Testament references to light used to describe the Messiah, the Pharisees would have taken this as a direct claim to Messiahship. They had just celebrated the celebration of light for six nights in a row. But the light that Jesus offered was the light of the knowledge of God and his salvation. Jesus fulfilled this aspect of the feast by being the light, not just of the temple, but of the whole world. And by the seventh and final day of the feast, the temple ceremony reached its peak. It was to seek God's blessing for rain, for the coming year's harvest, through the water libation ceremony. Now keep that in mind as you picture this moment with me. Sometime around 30 A.D., It was the last day of the great Feast of Tabernacles, and a golden container was filled with water from the pool of Siloam and carried by the high priest in procession back to the temple. As the procession came to the water gate on the south side of the inner temple court, three trumpet blasts marked the joy of the occasion, and the people recited Isaiah 12.3, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now while onlookers watched, the priests marched around the altar with water while the temple choir sang and the water was ceremonially offered to God. But suddenly, a loud voice rings out amid the crowd and the priests just glare in consternation and the people turn to see who dared to interrupt this service. They saw a young Galilean, somewhere in his early 30s, who many held to be a great rabbi or prophet or or even the Messiah, with all eyes riveted on him. He cries out in John 7, 37 to 38, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. Jesus was saying, I am the answer to your prayers for water. I am the Messiah and I can save you so that you will never thirst again. John goes on to explain what Jesus means by living water in verse 9. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who had believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And the ultimate future fulfillment of this feast will be when Jesus returns to dwell or tabernacle with us forever. And when he does, there's going to be no more death or suffering. And he himself will wipe away every every tear from all eyes. So, these are the seven feasts. And each one of them has a historical significance 
a messianic significance and a personal significance. So let me, I've mentioned most of them, but just by way of review, let me close by summarizing them, okay? So Passover, the historical significance is, and this is the literal occasion, it's freedom from slavery in Egypt, and also a lamb slain and blood applied. The messianic significance is Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away our sin. And then the personal significance is our redemption. Okay? Unleavened bread. Historical significance was exodus in haste from Egypt. Messianic significance is Jesus' sinless life and burial. The personal significance for you and me is our sanctification, being free from the leaven of sin. First fruits, historical significance, first fruits of the harvest. The messianic significance is Jesus' resurrection as first fruits of the new creation. And personal significance is our consecration, that is, living in newness of life as a new creation in Christ. Pentecost, historical significance is remembering the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Messianic significance is the sending of the Holy Spirit to indwell believers. Personal significance is our dependence on God, on his spirit, walking in the fullness of his Holy Spirit. Trumpets, historical significance was it's the Jewish New Year celebrating the creation of the world. The messianic significance is the resurrection of believers and the crowning of King Jesus. And the personal significance or relevance is our watchfulness. That is living in view of Christ's return. Keeping that at the forefront of our lives. Bringing balance and perspective to our daily life. Day of Atonement. Historical significance is a national forgiveness of sin. The messianic significance, it's, it's in conjunction with the second coming of Christ and future atonement and forgiveness for national Israel. There's a question mark there. There's a debate about that. Personal significance is repentance, our repentance. We, we live lives. All of life is repentance, right? We have things to repent of every day. Repentance is good. Um, there's a place for that. And finally, tabernacles. Historically, it's a celebration of coming into the promised land, living there, dwelling there. Messianic significance is Jesus physically dwelling with us after he comes back. It's going to be great. And personal significance is our rest, living in the rest and joy that is in Christ. We get a foretaste of that now, but it's going to be real physical and tangible and literal when he comes back forever. Amen. And you guys, come on back up. There is one last additional feast that the Bible speaks of, and that is the wedding feast of the Lamb. Wedding feast, of, I'm going to a wedding this coming weekend. It's going to be fun. Weddings are great. There's going to be a wedding feast of the Lamb. The prophet Isaiah foretold this. You can also read about it in the book of Revelation. I want to end on this. Isaiah 25, 6 to 9, is a, is a foreshadowing. It's a picture of what, what awaits us as believers. He says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, 
a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for the amazing intricacy and, and, and just planning and, and, and forethought you put in to these feasts and how they, they just uh, showcase your career as Messiah and, and how they're all relevant to us today, Lord, even in uh, those, those personal applications. God, it just should give us a confidence that you're in control, you know what you're doing, you're leading everything, directing everything for one glorious conclusion. And, and we're, we're in the midst of that. We're, we're anxiously awaiting those last three feasts to be fulfilled in rapid succession. And we believe they're soon, Lord. So take these things, Lord. I pray you'd help us apply them to our lives, that we would be ever watchful. We would fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.